With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This episode of Success, How I Did It is brought to you by Chubb. Learn more at chubb.com slash bi. Mark Lore's first big startup used to sell diapers, and it was eventually bought by Amazon for more than $500 million. But when it got acquired, Mark felt let down. And it was this really depressing sort of moment where we didn't even want to go out for a drink. It wasn't a celebration. It was sort of like mourning. After Amazon, he went on to found a competitor called Jet.com, which he recently sold to Walmart for $3 billion in cash plus a bunch of stock. So he's had a number of reasons to celebrate, and now he's the CEO and president of Walmart e-commerce in the U.S., and the stock is way up. From Business Insider, this is Success, How I Did It. I'm Allison Chantel. On this episode, Mark describes how he founded several companies with his childhood friends and what made the Walmart deal different than Amazon. So when people say, yeah, but you sold. And I said, well, we sold the company. We didn't sell out, which we did the first time. We started our conversation by talking about how he grew up in Staten Island on his way to Bucknell University. I had always been an entrepreneur in grammar school and high school. I loved entrepreneurship. But when I went to college and we were graduating, there weren't really, this is in 93, there really wasn't this sort of tech community, startup community there was now. I would have loved that. But um, then it was sort of banking or law and medicine, things like that. And so I studied finance in undergrad, spent the next seven years working in banking, as the market and the whole dot-com boom was sort of taking off, right? And I sort of couldn't take it anymore at one point. I knew I didn't want to be in banking. I knew that wasn't my calling. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And uh, so I found and contacted two of my best friends from grammar school. I said, hey, how are you guys doing? This seven years into our career. Do you want to, want to start a company? And yeah, they both did. And so the three of us started The Pit. Right. So the pit was completely different, really, than what you're doing now. It was a sports cards trading company. It was a, meant to be a sports stock market where you can buy and sell professional athletes like stock using the baseball card as a proxy for the athlete. So you never had to take delivery of the cards. We just kept them in a vault and people would just trade them, buy and sell. We had market makers. We had price charts and ticker tape. And I mean, it was really fun. It was a great experience. So the finance background, I think, is something that's actually really valuable in entrepreneurship. Money and dealing with money and figuring out the finances are, if you don't know how to do that, it can be a really fast way for your startup to die. What do you think learning, having that finance background has helped you in your business ventures? There's a lot that has to do with financial planning, of course, but also 
financing the business is critical and being able to sort of think through the financing rounds and what it does to the share price and what it does to investor returns and understanding risk and reward. You know, I was spent most of my career in, in risk, financial risk and stuff. It's, it's no different really in the way venture capitalists think about the investment. They're putting in money and there's a small probability of a big outcome. And how do you create the right risk profile for the venture capitalists and also be able to communicate it in, in a way that makes sense? I think it's a big part of raising capital. The pit wound up being successful. Not easy to make a first startup or any startup successful, but it sounds like you guys were. And you exited either right around or at the time the bubble burst for about right six million? after the bubble burst, nine months in. Wow. And never raised any uh, venture capital. It was all from angel investors before that to start this company. And we're doing well, bubble burst. And we thought, okay, time for the next round. Let's raise some venture capital. And the whole market was just shut down. Nobody would even take a call. The whole thing had blown up. And then we got an offer from Tops, the baseball card, bazooka gum manufacturer, and we took it. And so the next company was Quidzy, right? In about 2005? Yep. And that was, again, with a childhood friend. It was Vinnie Borer and Lax Chandra, the first business, and then me and Vinnie did the next business. Yeah. That's great. So what's it like to found a company with a childhood friend? I mean, you've clearly made it work. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's all about enjoying what you do on a day-to-day -day basis and getting to come to work and build something and do it with your best friends is makes it that much more enjoyable and fun. And that's why I do it. It's almost entirely about the fun of, of the experience. Like any experience, you know, doing it with people that you enjoy being around makes it that much better. So it sounds like the idea for Quidzy came out of personal need. I think at this point you have a, did you have a family? I just had a baby. Diapers? Yeah, just had a baby, first baby. And yeah, it was sort of a pain having to go out for diapers, usually last minute. And uh, I was looking online, and there really wasn't any place to get good prices and fast delivery on diapers, which was kind of crazy. This is back probably like in 2003, 2004. Started doing some research and realizing that people thought about it. Obviously, many, many people thought about it, but they said the economics didn't work because the diapers are too heavy and bulky to ship. And they're already lost leaders. So if they're already lost leaders, then you have to pay all this money to ship these bulky things. You could never make money. What's a lost leader? Lost leader means products that retailers lose money on to drive traffic into the store. So like brick and mortar stores, they don't really make any margin on diapers, but it drives traffic into the store. Now think about having to ship these big, heavy boxes. You could never make money. And that was sort of what we heard time and time again. And then we thought, wait a second, why couldn't diapers be a lost leader? for an e-commerce site, in the same way they are for brick and mortar, the loss profile might be different, but we would drive traffic and moms to the site, and then we'd sell them everything else. And that was sort of the, the thesis. And uh, that's how it, it sort of played out. We lost money on diapers. We made money on other baby products, whether it be cl baby clothes or strollers or car seats or baby care, stuff like that. And then we started selling pet stuff under a different domain, wag.com, and then we s drugstore type stuff, and then toys and clothes. And you know, in the end, we had 10 websites, specialty websites that all were kind of built off the back of this core demo, this mom that had a baby in diapers. So how did you scale a company in 2005? This is a year after Facebook launched. It was not a viable source of people like it is now. So how did you get people on your site early on? We did obviously the basic e-com search engine marketing, but there wasn't a ton of search engine volume on diapers at the time. A lot of it was, you know, old fashioned sort of direct mail, billboard and subway advertisements and things. We really focused on the big urban centers 
and at one point had an incredible share in New York City and San Francisco. That's where a good majority of our business was being done. And you didn't have really any e-commerce background before. Now, I mean, now you're a huge e-commerce name, but at the time you didn't really. Zero. Yeah, nothing yeah. nothing in retail whatsoever. So and we started you- actually selling product because it was self-funded in the beginning by Benny and myself. And we would just sell stuff online and then go buy it at BJ's and Costco and Sam's Club. And we really had to do that because Procter & Gamble at the time wouldn't sell us diapers direct. For at least two years, they said no. They didn't think that that was a viable business, so they weren't going to sell us. So we had to continue to buy from club stores until the clubs eventually, like we'd clean them out. So many clubs at the diapers, they would beg Procter & Gamble to sell us because their customers were coming in and they weren't getting any diapers and they couldn't stop us from buying it. And it was not until they called Procter & Gamble and said, please, would you sell diapers.com that we got? Yeah, so <laughs> it was sort of funny. Do they like stop you in the store and be like, who are you guys and why do you keep buying? Yeah, we tell them, you know, in the beginning, you know, they'd say, hey, listen, here's the deal, you know, leave us some diapers and we'll help you put it on the truck. And so we did that for a while. They were happy, we were happy, but we weren't getting and going direct and it was harder and harder to buy truckloads and truckloads of diapers like every week. So then we said, all right, let's take a different strategy here. Let's clean them out and ask them to call Procter & Gamble. (laughs) And the strategy worked. In 2009, I think that's the first time... Amazon got on the radar a little bit. It sounds like a vice president was sent in to have lunch with you. Is that what happened? We did meet some executives from Amazon considerably a year or two early than when we sold ultimately. So what happened in that meeting? Because the way that the tale goes, Amazon began to kind of threaten and be like, you must work with us or else we'll kill you on price. Is that what happened? No. Yeah, I think that was just been blown up. It just expressed an interest in learning more and it was a good conversation, and we said we'd stay in touch. They said if we were going to do anything with anyone else, please let them know first. That was really it. It was a pretty standard conversation that one would have with a startup that you were interested in staying close to. Was that interesting? Did you want to? Were you thinking about selling? Does an entrepreneur ever really not think about selling? At that point, we weren't thinking about it at all. We were growing, doubling each year, having fun. Really enjoyed coming to work, enjoyed the people we worked with, hiring great people. There was no interest whatsoever at that point. You guys would do experiments on the site where you felt like Amazon was changing the price based on what you were doing. And so you would toggle the price on your site and then you would go watch Amazon toggle their prices to kind of undercut later. I mean, that has to be kind of daunting as a startup to be like, oh my God, this Jeff Bezos is literally making his prices based on my company. My memory is sort of vague at this point because it's starting to approach 10 years ago. But I remember it being yeah, pretty competitive, pretty intense. Every day was a battle. So how do you survive when a big company wants to play in your space? We sort of doubled down on, on the brand and the emotional connection and just kept pressing the tiny little touch points that we did for customers that were differentiated so that it wasn't about price. So that even if we had higher prices, we'd still have a a very healthy business. And so that's what we sort of did. And so after they, they did drop prices pretty significantly, like like unheard of in diapers, it didn't impact us as much as it did other people, including themselves. We didn't lose that much business. We lost some, sure, but you could argue that what was left were the customers we wanted anyway. The people that were you know, spending a lot of money on the site, it wasn't just about the price of diapers. They liked the service, they liked the brand and everything we stood for in terms of the values and stuff. So. Actually, after that happened and we withstood that, we actually had a new sense of confidence that, wow, we've really got 
build something here that goes well beyond price. And that's really what a brand is, right? It's sort of price defensible. Mm-hmm. You can't beat a brand by just undercutting on price. That's what private label do all the time. Same quality, lower prices, doesn't mean that people still don't want Kellogg's Frosted Flakes because the brand has a meaning, right? Well, so eventually you did sell for a hefty price. I think both Walmart and Amazon, it sounds like, were interested. And ultimately, you went to Amazon for more than $500 million, just a massive exit. That is probably a game-changing moment in your life, right? Your last company had been sold for $6 million. This is like a life-changing number, a life-changing thing for your company. How do you process that? How did you decide where to go? You think we would have been like celebrating, wow, we just made enough money that we never have to work again, that sort of thing, and family set and grandkids are set and everything. And it was this really depressing sort of moment where we didn't even want to go out for a drink. It wasn't a celebration. It was sort of like mourning. That's what it felt like. And it was really weird. We're like, why do we feel so bad right now? We just sold this company and made a lot of money and we just didn't feel great. Why do you think that was? I think we had a real purpose. You know, I think a lot of entrepreneurship is about, like I said, having fun, building something, being empowered to sort of make decisions and run, build your own unique culture, hire the people you want to hire, watch them grow and develop and go on to bigger and better things and learn while they're there. And it's like there's a lot of benefits of doing it that go beyond dollars and cents. And I think that hit us like, hey, in this new structure, in this new world, a lot of the things that made us happy are not going to exist anymore. You start to realize there's not any amount of money that can buy your substantial drop in happiness, right? There's really no price for that. And I think that's what we kind of realize. It's like, hey, nothing's really going to change. We had a nice house, nice cars, clothes, food. Like we were living fine before. It wasn't like... The money was going to like suddenly bring us from poverty to sort of sustainability, right? And we knew we'd always be able to make money. We had good salary earning potential outside of this. So the money really just didn't do it. People ask, well, then why'd you sell? If you kind of knew this beforehand, we didn't exactly know how we'd feel. And we also knew that at that time, it was much harder to do $100 and $200 million raises. Nobody was really doing that back in 2010. And I think the venture community was more skeptical at the time about what would happen in the future, how, how much more aggressive might they get. And we were thinking that it would be a, a safer way to go, I guess, at the time. So it wasn't long before you were thinking about the next thing. Well, I think I learned a really good lesson, both how I approach acquiring companies and also how, how I think about being acquired for folks. I think traditionally what you hear when companies acquire companies, they say, let's just leave the company alone. Let them do what they were doing. Don't mess with the culture. Of course, there'll be things that poke at it, but (laughs) they will be really happy because we're not interfering at all. That on the surface sounds pretty logical, but if you're suddenly part of a bigger organization and you're left alone, it feels sort of isolating. The acquirer feels like they're empowering because you're doing exactly what you're doing before because you don't have the latitude to sort of operate completely independently. And at the same time, you know that there's a bigger mission and vision that you sit underneath that you're not a part of. It's kind of like depressing, right? So empowered to do what exactly, right? Like had Amazon said, hey, no, don't leave them alone. Give them the keys. They know baby. Let them run baby for the whole mothership. Let them drive this whole mom strategy. Totally different. Would have been excited. Probably would have gone down a different path completely. Wow. So you're almost too isolated. Yeah. So, so, you know, one of the things we did when we went out here at Walmart and bought 
these different companies, Hayneedle and Shoes.com and, and, and ModCloth and Moosejaw, were trying to empower the leaders to actually impact the overall organization. And that's hard to do, but empowering people, I think, is the, is the magic um, as opposed to isolating. And that's a lesson I learned because I felt it, and I'm trying to sort of put to use the, the lesson myself here at Walmart. We'll be right back after this. We started making wine in 1948, one bottle at a time. Today, we produce nearly 20 million cases a year. Chubb has helped us grow for the past 30 years. They helped us prevent equipment problems during harvest and provided guidance when we started exporting internationally. Now we're working with them on cybersecurity. My grandfather taught me to make a wine that over-delivers. Chubb over-delivers. Learn more at chubb.com slash bi. So let's go back to Jet for a second. So you come up with this idea. You and I actually met at a party. You were excited. You were like, I've got this innovation on price. I think I can just get really low prices that haven't been seen before. And what you were ultimately talking about was this company, Jet.com. So what was that innovation you felt like you had where you could do something that hadn't been done before in e-commerce? When you think about what prices you can charge online, it's directly correlated to what your costs are. If your costs are lower, you can charge lower prices. And a big portion of the costs are centered around logistics, shipping and fulfillment. And shipping and fulfillment are incredibly volatile on e-commerce transactions. Shipping could be just a few percent of sales or it could be 50% of sales. It really depends on the size of the basket, the weight of the items and things. If you were shipping something that was heavy and low dollar value, yeah, I mean like a $15 heavy bag of dog food, yeah, it could easily be $10 to ship that. Whereas you can pay $5 to ship $150 worth of apparel right? Like it, it changes dramatically. It also changes based on the location and proximity to the customer. And I realized that everything was being priced to the average logistics cost in general. And what I thought was, could we at Jet sort of untangle that and really make these costs transparent to consumers as they shop and then empower them to make choices around saving money by pulling logistics costs out of the system? And so, for example, in, in the easiest, most basic case, in a third-party marketplace situation, you go to buy in a marketplace and there's the seller with the best price. If that seller is located across the country, they get killed on shipping. If the customer's located down the street, they're really happy. So shouldn't customers know that? And shouldn't the retail be able to change its pricing based on proximity? And so making that transparent, it's easy for an item, but you know, at the basket level, if you've got two things in your shopping cart, like a bag of dog food and a dog bowl, and you search for a dog leash, surfacing products that can ship in the same basket from the same warehouse in close proximity is going to be way cheaper to ship than if the leash has to split ship, like in a completely different package from a different place. And so we built these algorithms to do this in real time. And we created this concept of smart savings, where we give customers at the product level incentives to choose certain products over another when the marginal cost to ship was lower. The result was bigger baskets, lower shipping costs, and ultimately the ability to charge lower prices. And did you find that that ultimately worked? Adding a lot of transparency to shopping It did, parts? it did. The basket size was higher, the shipping costs were lower. Yeah, it absolutely worked. 
one of the original ideas you had was this $50 type Costco model where you had a membership. And then pretty soon after the launch of the company, you did away with that. So yeah. We had never actually launched it. We were trialing it early on. So my thoughts around competitive advantage is always if you have a competitive advantage, see if there's ways to double down on it. And then we thought, wait a second, if we charge a membership, charge customers $50, we don't have to make any profit on the products we sell. We'll just make our profit on the membership. So we could take prices down even further. So sort of doubling down on an advantage we already had. That was the original thesis. And then as we got into it and we were testing early on, this was really early on, the economics just worked better to have more sales and make less margin, not charge a membership than charge it. I feel like sometimes founders start a company based on an idea and they're hesitant to say that it doesn't work and do away with it. Was that a hard decision or it was just based Not on at all. It was, just, it was just really logic. You can't get married to these decisions at all. I mean, you have to be open, constantly rethinking. I think it's one of the things that I'm learning here being at a big company versus a startup. At a startup, you're changing your mind so quickly because you're processing information in real time. And as you get more information, it's almost like machine learning. You get more information, you change a decision. You get more information, you change it again. You get more information, you change it again. And in a small company, you can bring everybody along pretty easily because there's like 10 key people and they're sort of involved in every decision and they sort of track. When you're a really big company, it's much harder to do that. And that's been a big challenge is just balancing that, get information, adjust, move fast with the communication piece. Right. And I think that's always always a challenge and I'm learning that lesson sort of and how to how to deal with that every day. So scale was really, really important. And you had a cool, innovative thing that I didn't even know was possible to do to gamify getting early signups, which was you offered 100,000 stock options, I believe, to whatever stranger was able to get the most people to sign up for Jet before it really even launched. Yeah, it was, it was sort of a, we had an app with a ranking system and the more people you got to sign up, you can see where you ranked relative to everyone else. And it was like a fun competition. People like to see their you know, ranking go up and down depending on, on who they told. But that brought in, what, hundreds of thousands Hundreds of, of thousands users? before we launched, wow. yeah. Before the stock was worth anything, right? Those guys probably got a pretty good exit <laughs> when you sold to Walmart, The top person was probably around a million dollars. That's amazing. Uh, well, that's a cool strategy. It seems like it worked really well. I guess Quidzy, you had raised a lot of money, but this one, it seemed like you were just like, let's go big really fast. And I think you raised something like $80 million before it even launched. 55 was the seed round. That was with the business plan. And then before we launched, we did another you had 100. a business plan? I feel like people don't do business plans anymore. No, we had a business plan. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you want to raise $55 million on a seed round, then maybe you have a business plan. Yeah. And then within six months, about $500 million was raised. So what was the thought process behind that? Was it just like, we need to get to scale really fast and I need as much money as possible? Yeah, being a, being a mass merchant, scale is incredibly important. So we knew we had to spend a lot of money in marketing and we knew we had to get big fast. And we needed to get generate billions of dollars of revenue and get on that sort of trajectory to get to a number where the business economics makes sense. If you can raise that much money pretty early on, it can't just be because you're a great serial entrepreneur. How do you get investors sold and employees sold on this huge vision that you've got? Part of it is having the big vision and not being afraid to take risk and go for it. The asymmetric risk profile of sort of the possibility of a big outcome, I think is really key. It's just not that interesting to say, you know, we're going to spend the next five years and build a couple hundred million dollar business. Like that's 
it's not that interesting from an investor standpoint. I think in terms of the financial planning, being meticulous about what the long-term plan looks like, what do the at-scale economics look like, and how you're going to execute and work backwards from that. So being really clear about, you know, this is what we're going to do, then we're going to raise more money, and then we're going to create more value, and we're going to do this. That was a big part of it, too. I think that you had three philosophies, if I remember correctly, when you were starting JET. And it was trust, fairness, and transparency. Yeah, those were our core values. Yes. Yep. So easy to say, hard for some to do in practice. Yeah, this is another lesson I learned after doing a few companies. I wanted the values to be values that the company lived and exhibited in the way in which it operated and the moves the company made. And so a great example of that would be, you know, in terms of transparency, the company was very transparent with financial information about how the company's doing. Um, we created an app where people could follow along the daily performance of the company. We were transparent with salaries. Everyone knew what everyone else was making in the company. Like That's, even you? Yeah. Wow. Everyone. It was posted. Yeah. Anyone. But it tied into the fairness where everybody at the same level in the company made the same amount. So whether you're a man, a woman, doesn't matter. Like everyone gets the same. And I thought that was really important that there wasn't any sort of weird unconscious bias happening, that everybody at the same level got the same amount. And when we hired somebody from the outside, we would basically size that person up and everyone would interview them and say, yep, director. And then, and then we'd go back and say, okay, everyone thinks you're a director. Go on LinkedIn, check out the other directors. We really feel like you'll feel like you're a director. Here's what you make. And people would say afterwards, like, you know, I just really appreciated not having to negotiate, knowing that it was fair. I think a lot of times people just want to know that it's fair, right? Like most companies, you don't know what people are making and then you find out and then you're like, wait a second, that's not fair. I've heard that word over and over and over being used. We eliminate that because it's open. Everyone's making the same. And so that's one example of, of how we live those values. And I assume you don't still, can you still do that at Walmart? No, it's, yeah, it, sure. yeah we can't do I mean, that. it's a massive company. So pretty quickly into the company, first off, you get to a billion dollar run rate. So you do scale really fast. Mm -hmm. But then these offers come back. Uh, you have Walmart knocking on your door. I think, what was it, within a year of launching? Within a year, yep. So how did you weigh it this time, going from an experience where you know you sell and you don't even want to get a drink with your co-founder because you're kind of depressed, to this where Walmart comes knocking and how did you weigh it this time? Yeah, it was, was, it it was, it was really interesting. So I met Doug. Doug McMillan. Doug McMillan, the CEO, McMillan, of, the CEO Walmart. of Walmart. And we had a few discussions and it was really in the beginning just about partnering and how can we work together. And we both realized that we shared a similar vision of wanting to sort of create this e-commerce business that was that customers absolutely loved. And so we, we shared a similar vision. We were sort of building trust. And then at one point he said, hey, we have the same vision. We're both looking to do the same thing. Do you think given our assets, your assets and stuff that working together, we had a higher probability of getting there faster? And just thought about it and felt like, yeah, definitely. The assets of Walmart were, were incredible. I did feel like we can get there faster. I felt like we can do more. I felt like it would be fun. The one piece was I didn't want to go down this path that we did last time, which was, hey, we're going to let you do your thing because I had learned that lesson before. And Doug said, no, no, we, we actually want to give you the keys and have you, your team, take the best of both worlds and drive this thing forward. And so that was incredibly compelling at the time. And uh, we had built a lot of trust and realized at that point, like that slight difference in sort of mentality 
meant everything. That was the difference between being depressed and being really happy. And so when people say, yeah, but you sold. And I said, well, we sold the company. We didn't sell out, which we did the first time. We didn't sell out because the vision we had is the same. Now we can get there faster with a higher degree of certainty. And that's all it comes down to. It's like, can you achieve the vision you had set out to achieve? That's when it really clicked for me. I was like, wow, that's everything. You buy a company, you have to make sure that the vision is intact and can get there faster than they would have on their own. And if you can solve that, it's going to be super successful. Were you able to be transparent with the team as this was going on? I assume that that's where the transparency stops. Yeah, it was really tough because yeah, we were super transparent. And for legal reasons, you know, we obviously couldn't talk about it. That was really, really tough. Even after it leaked, we couldn't talk about it. Acquisitions are really easy to mess up, but it seems like everything has been smooth sailing and stocks up 40%. You're now running all things digital e-commerce at Walmart but CEO and president of walmart.com. So what was the state of Walmart when you came in and what was your order, first order of priorities? Early on, was really to assess the organization and the structure and the people and set a clear vision, make sure we have the right people in the right spots. Then you know, after the first six months, we started doing things to change the customer value prop, like going to two-day free shipping with no membership, launch an easy reorder and pick up discount, start to leverage Walmart's unique assets, and uh, did a few acquisitions to help drive the sort of some of the long tail categories. Bought a couple digitally native vertical brands, Bonobos and ModCloth. So that's more about playing offense and giving us access to unique assortment. And then we built Store 8, uh, which was really about preparing for the future. We really wanted Store 8 to help shape the future of retail. And I didn't want to have the same people thinking about the business today, also thinking about the future. So we said, okay, let's segregate that from the rest of the business, call it Store 8, and we'll build startups. It's not a sandbox to kind of like play around with with potential innovation concepts. It was really to say, no, let's treat it like what startup would we build today that we think has a chance to change the future retail? What's the vision? And that's what really got me excited about coming to Walmart. So you've got a long career ahead of you, but you've had an impressive career behind you. If you were to give advice to someone who is a budding entrepreneur, kind of wants to take their first big swing, knowing what you know now, what would you tell them? I think the very first thing is that you want to surround yourself with the absolute smartest, most capable people that you possibly can, both hiring, also advisors and investors. Those relationships you make are not only helpful in the business you're currently in, but will be the next one and the one after and the one after that. And so if you're going and willing to work super hard and be tenacious and take risk and surround yourself with great people, that even if that business doesn't work out, you'll know pretty quickly, especially if you're taking risk and being aggressive. And you'll have to take those learnings, take those relationships and be able to like start again from a higher platform. You keep wanting to move to a higher platform each time, right? And I didn't know this at the time, but I was fortunate to make a lot of good relationships early. And those relationships sort of stuck with me each venture that I did beyond that. I'd probably say that's the most important thing. Great. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. It's been fun. Thank you so much, Allison. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. If you like success, help us spread it. Tell a friend who you think might like the show or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to Success in a lot of places, including Apple, Google Play, Radio Public, and Stitcher. 
And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always email us at audio at businessinsider.com. I'm Allison Chantel. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Success How I Did It. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.